John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 554.EX2320, certificate number 25639, the Guardian Angels. And the criminals would take the streets and take the communities like uh, zombies in Dawn of the Dead, roaming about, crack-crazed cretins with chromosome damage. You sound kind of husky. I just cleared my throat right before we started, but it was like, I should have gone a little longer. I was doing my sexy intro. Hi there. Hey, Ken, late night listeners. It's Ken Jennings. Wolfman Ken here. We're going to talk a little bit about some drive time radio on this show. I wonder, what what do you think our show would be like if you and I were just like AM radio jocks? <laughs> um, Is there left-wing talk radio? Mm, kind of. Not, not that, really. We're not really right? left-wing. All the attempts at it fail. Because left-wingers are are angrier at no one more than themselves? I guess. They're harder to gin up a rage. Maybe they have NPR. They're perfectly happy. So if you try to give them Air America, if you try to give them, you know, Janine Garofalo or Lawrence O'Donnell yelling at uh, at conservatives, they just by by temperament, they don't want it. Yeah, they'd rather hear Lake Wobegon. And also they have all, you know, liberals have all media. Sure, of you course. Know? Of course. Like if you want snarky le- <laughs> takes on the news from the left, boy, I wonder yeah. I wonder where you'd find that. Where would I go? Uh, what was the first time you visited New York City? Uh, I was in college, and it was the late 90s. So it wasn't yet- Pretty late. Post 9-11 New York. I saw the World Trade Center from the Staten Island Ferry, but right. um, uh, but it was pretty late. It was nothing like- New York in the movies I was watching Midnight Cowboy and so forth. And what was your what was your impression? I guess what was your expectation, and then what was your impression? I don't know if I remember. Um, I mean, did you expect to to see Snake Plissken uh, roaming the streets? <laughs> uh, I think I knew that it was. I mean, I had grown up in in big world cities. Like, I mean, Hong Kong or Tokyo, they're just as overwhelming as New York in their way. Right. I mean, I remember the canyons of, of, uh, you know, fifth Avenue or park Avenue, you know, looking like they, looking like they do in Spider-Man comic books or whatever. And I, and and I liked that. And I was happy to sit and gawk at stuff like that, even though I knew that that's, that makes you a Rube in New York. Uh Um, 
But you've, you've seen so many movies set there. New York's not really going to surprise you. I feel like nothing about it surprised me. Maybe it was smellier than I thought, but then Letterman had told me about that too. It's pretty smelly. Yeah, everybody, but everybody had hooked me up. Like the culture had, had, had prepared me for New York. But you weren't scared. No. It, for one thing, it wasn't scary. But uh, were you intimidated? No, I, yeah. I, I'd seen it all. The crowds, the noise. You mean like the prospect of, of a mugging or something? Yeah, that New York would be more dangerous than Tokyo or Berlin or Seoul. No, I think I'd... Because of something intrinsically New York about it. No, I think I knew that it was a, it was not a, it was not a scary time in New York. And, and my priors were, you know, unless you're in a really dodgy part of town or empty park at 2 a.m., you really don't have to worry about crime in cities. It's, um, I think you have to be pretty isolated now to think that, you know, you're going to have your wallet stolen or backpack grabbed within five minutes of getting out of the Port Authority bus terminal now. I mean, I think people know that's not true. Although we are kind of seeing a, a rise, a real rise in, um, in the idea that, that cities are, are, lawless places it's just now rather than it being uh pickpockets and and warriors style mugger mugger gangs it's now uh that the cities are full of antifa terrorists who are making it unsafe to be a federal narc yeah i think we've all had the you know if you live in a big city this year you've probably had the experience of relatives texting you worried about something they just saw happening in your city. Yeah. Portland is only three hours away. Are you safe? <laughs> I'm, I, I would like to be farther from Portland, <laughs> but not because of Antifa. Right. The, the, the idea, particularly in the, in the, the most of the continental United States by area that, um, that cities are dangerous, lawless, Places full of weirdos and punks who it's tr- are... It's true. I mean, they're they're full of weirdos. They are full of weirdos. They're just not that dangerous. Not anymore. But... But, but in the, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, American cities and cities kind of globally had uh, had some growing pains. It was, uh, it was a time where... Uh, what the what the the city's personalities were what the what uh, the approach to to um to crime and changing economics i mean all that stuff was still really up in the air and there was still lead in the paint as we've discussed lead, on omnibus and before and lead in the gas lead, yeah yeah exactly lead right. everywhere there was lead everywhere and that was affecting people's moods dairy queen had a lead blizzard it, <laughs> it was a strange time but uh but in the 1970s in particular like the, uh, you've surely heard here in Seattle the billboard that said, "Will the last person leaving Seattle please turn out the lights?" Due to the Boeing layoffs yeah. and the shrinking of the city, it's one of those. It's one of those things that every old Seattle mom, uh, you know, finds a way to 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 reference every every few months in kind of dr- trying to describe Seattle's progress over time. That's a very Seattle specific thing, but was that kind of true of the era in general? The American city was the American cities were dying in a way that people thought. They'd be empty. Different cities for different reasons, right? The Rust Belt cities, which had in the mid-century and early part of the 20th century been some of the most gilded and prosperous cities in the world, Detroit and Buffalo and Cleveland. Centers of industry. These were cities 
with just tremendous wealth and growing populations, those were all in decline for, um, for various reasons having to do with the, the sort of wholesale flight of manufacturing overseas and the fact that American, I mean, you can argue what, what produced the Rust Belt and maybe we should here on the Omnibus program. Should we argue about what produced the Rust Belt? But not this episode, but those cities were, were in, uh, in decline and the white flight phenomenon of people moving to the, the suburbs and leaving inner cities, um, because of, well, initially because they wanted to have big backyards and, and, uh, exclusive schools. And then as cities became less and less full of white people, then there was more and more desire of a certain class of white people to get out. And maybe saying exclusive schools is just another way of saying Saying, a lot of these things in the first place. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you're building new communities out there and so the schools have new chalkboards or whatever, but yeah, it's a, it's a, but also (laughs) it's a, it's a, (laughs) they have other people that look like you. White flight was a thing that recapitulated itself. Right. And, and, uh, and a lot of that had to do with in, in in many cities, fallout from the um, the kind of wanton urban revitalization or urban renewal, quote unquote, and uh, the construction of the the interstate highway highways. system. So just badly done right. urban renewal, or or urban renewal just as a code word for destroying destroying actual communities. Yeah. yeah, but cities like New York, you know, New York went bankrupt uh, in the 1970s, and there was a, a kind of like a, a general consensus that the city was um, that maybe the city itself wouldn't survive. Yeah, New York is is done as a international center of everything. Yeah, it, um, it if if it entered into a death spiral where it couldn't where in, in a state of bankruptcy, it couldn't pay normal operating expenses. Uh, like how would you ever recover from that? Right. And uh, people were fleeing the city in droves and, um, and the police were kind of abdicating their responsibility. There was, uh, there was corruption was endemic. It really felt, and uh, being a kid in the 1970s and kind of reading about it in the, um, you know, at, at, at a, at a great distance in, in Newsweek in, in Newsweek, um, just imagining, uh, America in the 1970s and kind of the inevitable feeling at the time, probably that these were, you, you always in, in the moment feel like the problems you're experiencing are unarrestable. We're certainly seeing that with, with the, the, um, climate change. Now we just can't imagine that there's a solution. It seems like we're over a threshold and 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 plummeting to an inevitable conclusion and that was the feeling of the kind of decline of america in the 70s there how is new york going to recover from a bankruptcy and restore civic order and clean up the rats and the you know feces in the streets like how is it ever going to be habitable again it just didn't seem conceivable, and I don't think anybody would have predicted it would once again become the most expensive city in the world, and you know, and that Times Square would be a such, like a, such that this period you're talking about seems like an almost unimaginable blip. You know, like yeah. like today, you could, it would be easy to assume there's this continuity of of New York power going all the way back to the Jazz Age, right? And not that it was interrupted by a time when it seemed like that was all over, and and. 
As it declined, a feeling in um, sort of the predictable corners of the United States that are always sort of tilted against a New York City, uh, a kind of a barely suppressed glee that um, yeah, they had it coming. Yeah, that there was a there was instant karma in effect. That New York, full of debauchery, that's what and, you get for having all those drug addicts and sure. queer, queers and Puerto Ricans. Yeah, I guess. Puerto Ricans and Jews. I mean, that's you know, the city. Uh, the city could only but fail. Um, and during this era, it's it's kind of difficult to have um to have watched this from afar and square it with the fact that New York was still a cultural capital and in, in many ways, maybe the cultural capital, right? This is the, these are um, the heydays of disco and Woody Allen and um, theater and publishing continue unabated. Right. Great, great writing. Um, New York in the seventies is now we look back at it and kind of erase um, all that fear and all that, doom and gloom and just think, Oh, right. You know, like John Lennon was living there and, and, uh, like what a fun time Lou Reed, but I guess it depends on what part of town you're in. Right. Well, or uh, what time of day, what time of day and what your, like, like everything, what your access was, but also what you were prepared to endure. And I think people that lived in New York then as now get used to, uh, enduring things that other people would find kind of m- more difficult. And, and nowadays, it's just: Are you willing to take forty-five minutes to get anywhere? Yeah, yeah. How awful a subway a subway ride are you prepared for? But in the seventies, the question of how awful a subway ride you were prepared for had a very different meaning. Right. The subways were, by all accounts, full of violent crime, um, a palpably unsafe feeling, dirty. Uh, we, we have romanticized that era too, because that's the, the dawn of hip hop and graffiti and, um, you know, the, they're, they're kind of colorful versions of that. Time. Those trains, some of those trains do look great. Yeah, they Don't do. Don't get me wrong. But at the time that but you don't want to get knifed on them. That graffiti was seen as, uh, you know, endemic of, um, of uh, just a lawlessness. City spiraling out of control. Yeah. And, and the, the kind of Curtis Blow, fun version of it that has made it into the history books. Um, I don't think was true for anyone, not, uh, not the commuter or Curtis blow himself, but, and, and this is also the era of the Bronx becoming essentially a, um, a place where the community burned night after night that, um, that really it, it became a kind of lawless part of New York. Um, the police were not able to, uh, maintain order and it's, uh, it's not that different than how we perceive American cities or, you know, the kind of the decline of the inevitable decline of America today, I guess, which is hopeful. Yeah. I mean, cause you can see that some of these problems did solve themselves in, you know, over not that much period of time. I mean, partly through natural processes, you know, if urban cores hollow out and rents go down, uh, at some point, white flight reverses. Yeah. And that, that of course, isn't inevitable and wasn't anticipated, but the idea that you could go down into New York and, and start a dance troupe and, and just kind of take over a 8,000 square foot loft and just run around in leg warmers wasn't what anybody expected to happen in 1974. 
but it's but it made for some pretty good TV in 1984. Thank goodness. Yeah, I'll say. We never would have had fame without it. And when you think about Seattle in 1994, um, we had access to all the abandoned warehouses you could possibly ask for. Places to show your work or for yeah. your band to rehearse or... And you saw the cultural renaissance that came out of it. And we thought at the time that um, that it was that all this blight was a product of a city in decline. That Seattle, how do you recover from from it? It wasn't even really um, clear to us then, and you couldn't have predicted how it would happen. But there were, you know, I wonder, I wonder if there are New York analogs to the Seattle phenomenon of people essentially voting for the blight. You know, I don't want these big tech billionaires to come in here and, and, uh, and try urban revitalization. We like our, we like our gritty Seattle. We like our blight. And as a result, we did not get uh, a billion dollar Paul Allen improvement project that we could have. Well, there in, in New York, it was always a question of law and order, you know, some basic government, uh, basic questions of who, who's governing and how. And, uh, Rudy Giuliani, who has become, like a cartoonish buffoon in his later life. Who has squandered more goodwill ever <laughs> than Rudy Giuliani? In the early eighties was a, you know, was a sharp and articulate, um, moderate, but tough on crime public prosecutor who, who, uh, who was going to sweep into New York and, and change the way business got done. And that's another uh, another topic for a future omnibus: the broken windows theory of crime and Rudy Giuliani's cleanup of New York. But uh, and, and whatever you attribute it to, it is true that New York in 1984 and New York in 1994 were markedly different places, mm-hmm. uh, entirely different experiences. And, and I remember there were the New Yorkers bemoaning it. Right, well, all sure. these chain restaurants in Times Square. Those should be porno theaters. And Times Square, when it was full of porno theaters, was <laughs> was terrifying. I mean, it it was not just terrifying to look at out of a cab, but terrifying to walk down the street. But a great place to get a fake ID. It was a great place to get a fake ID, and it was a great place to see a porn in in thirty five millimeter, which you, can, you can't do anymore. <laughs> you're such a you're such a cineast. Or seventy millimeter porn. I don't think seventy millimeter porn is a thing. <laughs> But uh, terrifying, and there was that there was that period in between when Times Square was no longer terrifying, but had not yet become uh, grotesque. A, a theme park, yeah, uh, where where you saw the cleanup happening and kind of couldn't help but give a little bit of a slow clap, like, oh, okay, so it didn't. It didn't have to be quite that bad. But I do remember New Yorkers just showing their 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 uh, their tough, hard-bitten New York souls by saying, like, there shouldn't be a Disney store there. Well, there know? shouldn't, frankly. But but now, it, I mean, that ship sailed so long ago, there's a whole generation of, of fully-fledged grown-ups who'd never remember a time. Think, think about how Times Square is now. If you've seen The Office, Times Square is now a signifier for, you know, kind of a, a, a hokey tourist strip mall right. in the middle of a cool place, right. you know, which could not be more different than how it was a comedy signifier 20 years before. So during that period, that lawless period in the late seventies, and it was, wasn't lawless by any means, but when, when the police become overwhelmed and when they and others, have, and other social 
welfare systems pushed past well past their breaking point. Right. The 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 communities that start to suffer first are of course the poorest ones and the ones that that have um you know that uh, the the police will as they shrink will shrink into a cordon around around the upper west side. Uh, yeah, right, around <laughs> the neighborhoods that that have the 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 most vocal and and connected uh like Defenders and supporters still happens today. And so if you were a resident of New York city who lived in the Bronx or in Brooklyn or in any part of the community that wasn't already an enclave, you not only were facing a city in bankruptcy and, uh, and without, you know, just in general where services were, um, were starting to fray, but you were on the front lines of that experience. And, um, and the, the, the feeling I think from the outside looking at those communities is always that, um, that it's a, that it's a community problem, not, it's not our problem, right? Or it's not the, it's not the city's problem. It's not the police's fault. It's the decline of the American family or it's the decline of Western civilization. Uh, but from within the community, of course, people are, um, just trying to go about their daily lives and and stunned at the lack of institutional i mean you know like newly surprised with every passing day even the most cynical person surprised at how completely a city or an administration can abandon them yeah and in in the case of uh, of late 70s new york there was a a young man by the name of curtis sliwa who was a a roman catholic kind of a local boy who showed a lot of promise, but had kind of become a, um, he'd gotten expelled from high school for being, he'd gotten expelled from his Catholic high school for being a little bit of an agitator. What neighborhood? Where's this guy from? So Curtis was, grew up in Canarsie, which is a part of Brooklyn over by Jamaica Bay, like further out, uh, than Flatbush, Mm -hmm. which in the, you know, in the forties and fifties would have been a neighborhood full of Italians and, and, you know, an immigrant, uh, he looks Italian, but Sliwa doesn't sound Italian. He's half Italian and half, uh, like, I guess his mother was Italian and his father was Polish. I guess that makes sense. It was probably, but Roman Catholic Slivovsky or something. Yes. Um, and he went to Jesuit school and he, uh, he was, a. you know, like a sort of typical New York kid of the sixties. Um, but like I say, got expelled from high school and sort of, um, didn't end up, uh, I guess flourishing in the, in the sense that he didn't go to Dartmouth, but he did flourish in the sense that he was the night manager of McDonald's in the Bronx. Um, so working guy, yeah, a work at supporting whatever his household was. A working guy and a guy that um I think probably felt uh felt a connection to to like blue collar New York, which and and this is the other thing that's very hard for us to think to imagine now, but that New York was a majority blue collar city. Thought of itself as a working class city that the rich and the the cultural elite were confined to the upper 
upper uh, Manhattan. Yeah, and the finance, the tiny finance ghetto, and everybody else is is it's just working for a living, packing meat yeah. or, or, or sewing undershirts or something. Yeah, right. It was a. I mean, New York was a manufacturing center. It was a. Uh, it was you know shipping center and not not a place. Um, not a place full of people with lofty ambition, but Sliwa in, in working at this McDonald's was face to face with, uh, with just public violence, public sort of, uh, lawlessness subways that were, um, that were, that were dangerous to the, to, to the degree that even in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, uh, you'd be afraid to go down there, and as you know, the, the subways in New York are are not really optional for most people, right? It's the it's the only way to get it's around. It's the only way to get around, and so um, you know, people were getting mugged and beaten on on the regular. And Curtis decided, in a in a way that feels almost instinctual uh, for a certain kind of young dude. Uh, that he and his friends were going to get together and they were going to form effectively a vigilante group that were going to, um, they were going to protect the neighborhood by, by way of just sort of making themselves a, a presence on public transit. There's a spectrum of vigilante hood that ends with, you know, some guy in a, superhero outfit and body armor and, and yeah. an open carrying. Um, but there's also, you know, it's, it's normal for community groups to form where neighbors, you know, keep an eye out, sponsor neighborhood watches. I mean, how crazy is this idea on the scale of, of one to the Punisher? You know, neighborhood watches actually date back to the early sixties. Um, and, same same time period is it like uh, but, scared white flight uh, suburbanites? Ten, yeah, ten years before, but but the 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 notion that communities look out for themselves. I mean, as we've talked about on the show before, policing it's not inevitable. A, yeah. Policing is is a fairly recent invention, right? Yeah. In in the idea in the sense of it being like um, an uh, an agent of state power. Uh, policing was throughout most of history, a community-based um, sort of, uh, you know, a, a consensual enforcement of community standards. But I think in New York in particular, and nationwide, the galvanizing effect of the uh, the murder of Kitty Genovese in 1964, um, she was a young woman in Queens who was knifed and murdered over the course of a long period of time, screaming for help. It became uh, kind of a case, uh, an inaccurate case study of what's called the bystander effect, where responsibility dilutes with the number of people, you know, available to help out with something such that sometimes you don't get the kinds of interventions you need. Right. She's screaming for help and dozens and dozens of people are turning up the volume on their television sets, assuming someone else is going to come to her aid and, uh, and I assume it's somewhat the idea we have, uh, that came up out about her case in the eighties and nineties of kind of jaded New Yorkers staring out this window and watching somebody get assaulted at night. I guess that's not really true, right? Like, like the lack of intervention in her case was a lot more understandable than we have come to hear. But it did, it did like in so many instances where, uh, where one event 
ends up standing in for what is perceived to be an entire, uh, like perceived to be an epidemic. Endemic problem. Yeah. Um, she, she became a, a watchword for this, um, this idea that we had stopped caring for one another, that, that we had stopped bearing a shared responsibility for the quality of our cities and our towns. And, and the, also that as a result, they were literally coming for us. Right, right. Uh, uh, zombie gangsters. I mean, the, um, the movie The Warriors actually came out right around the time that Curtis Sliwa started yeah. his, his little vigilante group. And the, the Warriors were promoting this notion that there were like gangs roaming the streets of New York, effectively enforcing neighborhood law, fighting, fighting stick fights with one another in abandoned lots. It's a New York that, uh, it's a very colorful New York. One you almost prefer to the, yeah, I was about to say, version. I was about to say, you seem, <laughs> you seem nostalgic for this world that never was. Well, I, I also looked for Snake Plissken the first time I went to New York, but I went in the 80s and New York was still... He, he might have been there. Yeah, he, I think he was. He was hiding out. Um, but Sliwa and his, and his friends started to ride the, uh, the subways and with an ethos that they would not carry weapons, that they were not going to be a... Um, they weren't going to resort to violence. They were going to practice a kind of 70s... Uh, they, they knew some judo moves that they learned from, uh, from, <laughs> from watching enter the dragon. Yeah. Enter the dragon moves, but otherwise they were going to practice kind of conflict de-escalation. but more than anything, just the fact that they were, that they would be present, uh, and bear witness and be, be prepared to intervene. And you have to be recognizable. In this kind of scenario. So Sliwa's original group was called the Magnificent 13, but after he had about 50 people uh, in his Magnificent 13. Yeah, you can't 13, keep changing the name. Uh, it's like he, when the U.S. decided they couldn't just keep adding stripes to the flag. Yeah, they decided, we're the United States, not... You get a, you get a pinstripe flag if you keep doing that. The 13, the 13 uh, states that matter, and then all y'all. <laughs> right. It's annoying. Rhode Island is a stripe, and I'm not. Texas he, isn't. I mean, you know what? You can. That's the great thing about America. Any one of those stripes can be your stripe. Every state right now uh, gets uh, about like three point eight, uh, three uh, what one three eighths of a stripe. Yeah, a little less, I guess. Huh. Each each stripe is three point eight states. What do you think is the Washington three three point uh, eighths? Well, I mean, it depends. Do, do, does the, do they move to the lower right of the flag? Are you reading it up? Like, is the bottom of the is the bottom half of the lowest red stripe Alaska and Hawaii? It must be. Because if so, we're we're you know we're we're below the blue standard. But it also means the early states get shorter stripes. Yeah, because the first six stripes are like half the half the width. Yeah, screw you, early states. And they're tiny. We get the big fat stripe because we're the big west. Although, wait a minute, if you're if you're if you're gauging it by stripe width, but not length, but if you take the overall area of the flag that is stripes and divide that area up. That's true. Then so, you're so going to have. So maybe that's what you would have to do. Yeah. The smaller states are going to have more of those small. I like to keep them at the beginning. There's just, there's like, would there be any even big states in the first? Yeah, maybe. Hmm. What's the biggest state of the original states? Well, I mean, Pennsylvania, the, New York. The first twenty to twenty-four of the states are going to be um, are going to be in the half stripes, and I don't think that gets you Texas. It's close. Yeah, I don't think you, I don't think it gets you Texas. Yeah, right. So, so it's okay. Yeah, well, yeah, it would be nothing bigger than Pennsylvania. You're right. 
Ohio, maybe. No, Ohio's not not bigger than Pennsylvania. Is New York bigger than Pennsylvania? I think so. Isn't it? The land area of a what's the land speed of a of a European swallow, an unladen swallow? Okay, here are the answers to all our questions. Uh Pennsylvania is slightly bigger than Ohio. They are the 33rd and 34th biggest state, but New York and North Carolina are bigger than either. New York is the 27th biggest state. Virginia would have been bigger at the time, of course, when it still had West Virginia in it. Right. But now it doesn't. And in terms of how quickly they entered the Union... So Virginia was the largest state in the original 13 colonies. That Uh, seems right, just because of the... Right before before it got sawed in half. Well, and especially since it it uh, it went all the way to the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think there, by some by some reckoning, isn't um, what is it like? What's today Minnesota part of Virginia? Yeah, uh, on, yeah, yeah. As far as Virginia was drawn on old maps, uh, Texas was the twenty eighth state. Oh, so it just would, down it, into the big stripes. It would not have to be in one of the small stripes. I think, if my math is right. What do you think about the word tushy? I don't know if we've addressed that. Too cute? Too Yiddish? I mean, it just it depends. It's not a thing that I would say in a bar. <laughs> well, what kind of bar? Uh, but it also, it feels a little bit like something a flapper might say in a, like to a... To a boy in a carrying a tennis racket? Come shake, let's come shake our tushies. Yeah, like t- tushy, it's, I don't think I, I don't know. It might be even be a little too cute to say to a baby. My... I think my mom used to say tushy. Tushy. Yeah. I think tush. My dad would say tush and he, you know, he would say like, look at her tush. Uh, but I mean, my dad was just, from. Just you two driving around or <laughs> sitting right. outside the barbershop. Hey, look at, no, he would say it to his tushies. friend and I'm, you know, I was sitting there with my, I was sitting there having just gone to the store to buy them cigarettes. But you know what our American parents did not have? What? A bidet. No, they did not. A bidet is a very sophisticated European and Asian uh, you know, a symbol of finally cl- at long last making its way to these shores belatedly, like, like the metric system or, uh, what a general belief in, uh, in science and, uh, rationality. Education, right. I don't know if that'll come or not, but, but uh, you're saying that we, but bidets are here. We can, we can use a bidet just like, just like our European and Japanese friends. And an incredibly affordable one. No longer do you have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars if you want your own bidet, because you can attach a Hello Tushy to your toilet as it stands. Hello Tushy. And that's what you would, you would say. Hello, Hello Tushy. Hello, Hello Tushy. And, uh, then you can, uh. Just wash yourself with the cleansing power of water instead of this weird system we have, which you would never invent from scratch, a roll of uh, a roll of paper sitting next to you. Yeah, paper that's been bleached and processed a thousand times. I mean, I guess... It just it, seems like it's not that different from a Sears catalog in an outhouse. Why it, are we still doing this? Right. It, 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 uh, it's derived from pulling a leaf off a bush. Um, but there's a, there's a better world there's out there. There's a better way. A, a better hands-free way. It's cleaner. It's cheaper. Don't need electricity. Don't need additional plumbing. For $79, you can turn your toilet into a bidet. And and it's still a toilet. That's the thing. You just double, oh, I mean, it's a toilet I don't, and a bidet. It's true. I don't want to give you the impression that it no longer <laughs> flushes. It still does everything your toilet does, whatever that yeah. list is. Plus. It'll just also uh, cleanse you with water. Uh, and every Hello Tushy bidet attachment has a 60-day risk-free guarantee, which you're not going to like this, but they call it the happy butt guarantee. I don't like it. You but, don't like it? Well, uh, no, 
No, I don't. I you don't need, like any. You need a happier butt. I, mm, I mean, I like cleanliness. It's next to godliness. But uh, but I but I don't need. I can euphemize the cleanliness I'm talking about. I don't need to be specific about it. But I know you're a man of specificity. So you go ahead and say butt all you like. Hello Tushy has just really embraced the fact that uh, first people will snicker when you say butt, but then eventually they'll buy a bidet. Right. You have to just you have to just get through the discomfort of getting people to talk about a nice clean butt. Hello Tushy seems to definitely have embraced the idea that you just say it, don't spray it. <laughs> you do spray it. <laughs> you say it first. You install and then spray it, it, then you spray it. <laughs> And right now we can offer actually a deal off the already low price that I already blew you away with. Do you, do you have that deal, John? What is the deal? You get 10% off plus free shipping right now at hellotushy.com slash omnibus. That's a considerable savings. 10%. It's plus a lot. Plus free shipping. So go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus for 10% off your purchase of a bidet attachment and free shipping. HelloTushy.com slash Omnibus. The Magnificent 13 uh, changed their name to the Guardian Angels in 1979, and they uh, they got a distinctive uniform, a distinctive and inexpensive uniform of a T-shirt with a cool logo on it. A cool logo, which is basically just the Masonic uh, pyramid with the all-seeing eye, and some, but it's more like we are watching you than than we, wisdom or anything. Yeah, we're yeah, we're like we are watching out. I mean, Neighborhood Watch to this day often has an eye in its logo. Yeah, Neighborhood Watch often has that character um, of the uh, of uh, it's called it's actually called Boris the Burglar, the <laughs> little the little oh the guy sneaking around. Yeah, who kind of looks like, he uh, looks like Boris gonna, and Natasha. He looks like he's going to steal my cookie crisp. Yeah, it's Boris the Burglar. Oh, by the way, I'm gonna he- I'm gonna hear about this if I don't. There are actually seven small stripes and six large ones, not the other way around. Oh, so Texas probably would have to be a small stripe. All right, please c- continue your story of uh, sorry, of Texas, the Masonic symbol. <laughs> uh, but the most recognizable part of the the Guardian Angels uniform was the red beret, yes. and it was a time I think when I mean the red beret is is uh, is pretty bold statement. It connotes a real paramilitary vibe. Yeah. Right? And this is pre um this is pre like S1W's uh the kind of like the militarization of hip hop that happened a little bit later and maybe maybe as a result, yeah, yeah. I would I would think so. Um because you would see these guys, you know, you're trying to get into your building in New York in the early 80s or whatever and here's some guy in a kind of a you know, a, kind of a members only jacket and matching bra. And the, have you seen this? The braids often had paraphernalia. Sometimes they'd have like little raccoon tails or beads hanging off them. I don't know if that is how many cookie crisp burglars you put away or whatever. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of flair uh, that goes with the uniforms. And now if you see, because guardian angels still exist, if you see them now, their, their berets are often bedecked with uh, pins and, and buttons and other. It's because they're serving their waiting tables at Chili's after their, after their shift on the subway. But in the early days, the paramilitary vibe and the kind of gang, uh, the gangbanger vibe of it, um, like the uniforms weren't beyond the t-shirt and the beret. They weren't standardized. Some guys were wearing like, uh, like studded leather uh, uh, leather leather wristbands, and some of them had you know like lots of cool 
cool inner city flare suspenders and um, parachute pants. But the but it was an all volunteer organization, and it was all young people from the communities, men and women, who um, who underwent some minimal amount of training in uh, in conflict resolution and in in uh like you were saying enter the dragon style jujitsu and we're picturing like blue collar white dads just like catholic guys with mustaches no most of them um kids directly from the bronx inner city kids an incredibly diverse Hmm. uh complexion to the original members most of them actually people of color um who were you know who so it happened very quickly that it wasn't just curtis and his and his drinking buddies It, it very quickly reached into the, the younger levels of the community. Curtis was living in the Bronx and and working at this McDonald's, and his original Magnificent 13 weren't a bunch of uh, oh. Italian guys from Canarsie. I was picturing it wrong. No, they were, um, you know, they were like black kids just out of their teens who were, and there was always a, a, always a kind of striking photo opportunity that Curtis would kind of stand in the front of his, um, of his soldiers, and he never he didn't structure it that way. He didn't, you know, he didn't call himself the general. He didn't or have whatever. a writing crop, but he did wear a tie often. Mm. And everybody else was kind of in there, uh, in like flash dance style. Um, I mean, they're they are extremely cool looking by by conventional standards. If you look back at the nineteen seventies and these and these cats who were, um who were taking over where they felt the police had left off. Too bad it didn't catch on. Too bad nobody ever tried this out on the runway in Milan. Well, what happened was the police and the it, the um, like mainstream administration in New York did not like this idea at all. And you can kind of see why. Um, Is it the... Good, what we would think of as the good progressive case against vigilantism or the bad corrupt law enforcement case against vigilantism? Much more the latter in the sense that they felt like they were both encroaching on, you know, the, the argument was this is the police job. This is the police's job to do what you're doing. It makes and, us look bad that guys in red hats are doing it. Right. And then the, the guardian angels would reply, well, sure, but you're not doing it. And so somebody has to. And the guardian angels were not implicated in uh, what you think of as the danger of vigilantism in the in that they weren't, you know, because they had a prohibition on carrying weapons, and they actually search one another before going on patrol. Like they all meet to 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 go ride. <laughs> I, the, I think I've seen that, but I got the wrong idea. <laughs> they're going to go they're ride the stand, F train. They're all standing in a circle, rubbing each other's legs. And they're like, "Are you sure? You know, like make sure you're not carrying a knife because they wanted to be." To be sure that that it didn't escalate in that way. And what they did was they would, each one, they'd wait in a subway stop. The train would pull in and a a different angel would get on each car. And so you you had guardian angels throughout the train. And at each stop, they would all kind of step onto the platform from their respective cars and check in with each other. And the idea being that if any guardian angel didn't come out of their car, uh, that meant that they were in trouble and that the others would all converge on whatever car it was that 
you know, that there, a person didn't appear. So it's a show of force. It's, um, there's no car on this train that's safe right now. Yeah, it's, co- well, or there's sorry, no sorry, car that's unsafe. Sorry, that's safe, that's safe for you, the evildoer. Right. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm speaking as Batman here. And it, it, uh, yeah, it's the idea of sort of collective watchful action, that what's, what's not going to happen on this train is that you just get away with something because no one's ready to stand up to you. Um, whether or not the guardian angels are capable of taking down a masked armed cat burglar or not, most crimes of opportunity are going to be suppressed when you're in an environment where there's somebody standing there with their arms folded, wearing a red beret going, you know, there's, it might be a genie. There's nine, there's nine other of us, nine, nine other genies on this train. Um, you know, maybe you want to mess with me, but do you want to mess with us all? But the, the police didn't like it, and the idea of uh, and they started to really hassle um, the guardian angels, and and it was a bad optic because the guardian angels were much more. Uh, they looked like the neighborhoods they were patrolling, where the NYPD did not. They were the dads and mustaches, right? So you've got you've got you know young black kids who are concerned about violence on the subways, and the you know the the uh, white cops from Staten Island don't like the look of it. And they arrested Curtis multiple, multiple times over the course of these early years. And to his discredit, he's not armed. What's the charge even uh, unauthorized possession of a beret. Yeah. Just being, um, you know, you can make the, or they made the case that the guardian angels were a gang that they were um, because this was an era where, Protection rackets and extortion and the threat of violence was really threaded through the whole culture of New York. And so not much of a leap to to make the um, accusation that the Guardian Angels had to have been benefiting uh, from a kind of uh, – th- there had to be graft involved, right? I mean, that's the only way the NYPD could have seen it. Is there, What did New Yorkers think? Well, it depended on who you asked, and and this was um, this was a time when the the iconic character of the New York vigilante also started to take over the popular imagination. Well, this is all still pre Bernie Getz. Right? It's pre Bernie Getz, but it's um, but that's in the air. The, the, the people are mad as hell, and yeah, they're not going to the, take it anymore. We're going to people have to take the law into their own hands, and and depending on what part of New York you lived in, maybe you you thought the greater threat was the guardian angels than the muggers on the subway. And again, we see it with with Black Lives Matter and Antifa. Now there are people in the city who feel like uh, Black Lives Matter and Antifa are there to protect them from abusive police and there are people who share the city with them who feel like black lives matter and antifa are there are the, the are the trouble yeah they are the agents of destruction and it is the it's only the police that are keeping them from i don't know what burning the city to the ground or stealing all of grandma's china i'm sure you have a galaxy brain take that um supersedes both views well, of course, you know, I'm because I'm a giant blue penis man that only that can see, you know, <laughs> you centuries four, into the future. Dimensionally. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not like I have a list of which Antifa world. are good and which Antifa <laughs> are bad. All the Proud Boys are bad, however. Sliwa discredited himself uh, in those early days by actually, because he 
felt like the the crimes that they were stopping and the harassment they were receiving went underreported, undocumented. He actually set up a couple of fake uh, fake busts where his crew like nabbed a perp, but it was staged. And then, uh, to his everlasting shame, had himself kidnapped by a friend and dropped out in in Canarsie or whatever. This just escalated to 11 really fast. Yeah. Uh, Fake kidnapping. And then he claimed that he'd been kidnapped by some cops who were shaking him down. And when he was busted for it, he said, I mean, I did these things and I'm really embarrassed, but I was trying to illustrate what our reality is day in and day out. It's, I'm speaking to a deeper truth with my lies. Well, that's right. I'm and never, never a fan of that argument. It's a terrible argument, and it it uh, it discredited him, and it made it seem that one of the problems with the optics of the guardian angels is they always it's they always are right on the edge of seeming a little bit like a cult of personality. You know, a little bit. Well, that's the outfit and the the uniform and the masonic symbol don't help. Yeah, the 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 it's. I think if you're on a subway and there's somebody on there like swinging a big chain and uh, chewing on a toothpick and staring at you and a guardian angel walks on the train, you're probably grateful they're there. Um, But in general, if you're just reading about them in the newspaper, uh, you'd maybe rather that work be done better by by, by someone with actual accountability. Yeah, by trained professionals. Yeah, and training. Uh, Sliwa became a public figure in New York, kind of in the same era and in the same way that Donald Trump initially did, where New York was capable of generating these national figures who were just clowning New Yorkers. <laughs> like clownish Donald Trump, he also, and I did not know this until I just read this old magazine profile, was also married to a, to a model who, yeah. who like appeared on, you know, kind of a Lower East Side Vanna White who appeared on... Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and so forth. Well, and, and Sliwa has been married a few times and, you know, that stuff doesn't, it isn't to his credit his, either. His Wikipedia entry has a, has the rare for the 20th century unknown wife entry. <laughs> please, Curtis Sliwa's first wife, if you are listening to this in whatever era, please let us know. Please touch in with us. Please blink if you're all right. His wife, Lisa, was, a, was like a stunning six foot tall, um, Black belt in karate, who was also national director of the Guardian Angels and has become a media personality in her own right. Wow. Take that, Marla Maples. Yeah, kapow. But but the Guardian Angels far exceeded their actual reach culturally in the early 80s. You, you mean their numbers did not live up to their Yeah, we talked about influence? them in Alaska. And the oh, idea, sure. You know, the idea that the Guardian Angels, just in the same way that why was anybody talking about Donald Trump that wasn't <laughs> actively in uh, part of a renter's group? Do you cheer for a Buffalo USFL team? If not, shut up. <laughs> um, but the Guardian, and the Guardian Angels made many attempts to expand uh, around the country and around the world. And in fact... Oh, there were chapters in different cities? There are now. There, uh, there are active Guardian Angels in over 82 cities. I don't know. I think I've seen one someplace I didn't expect. I think I've seen a Guardian Angel and not in New York. And I was like, is this still a thing? Have you ever seen one? I have. I've seen them, uh, I've seen them multiple times. I'm always thrilled when I see one. <laughs> I always go up and talk to them. <laughs> it's like seeing a, a DeLorean or something. Yeah, and they're always... They're always delightful i mean they're always happy to talk and and um now they're kind of goodwill ambassadors from the 80s yeah sort of <laughs> and, but they're still doing that it's job. like the noid 
And and uh, they've just recently, like, they have an organization that uh, that defends animals. They have an, like an animal rights guardian angels, like against animal cruelty. Yeah, and now they have, in response to the Me Too movement, um, uh, there was kind of a, a growing recognition that a lot of the crime that happened on New York City subways was actually sexual sure, harassment, uh, harassment, pervert behavior, flashing, and groping. They have now a pervert squad. <gasps> Uh, which is which is not made up of perverts. Just no, to be clear. no. Let's hope not. But um, you know, all people uh, like made up entirely of people that identify as women, uh, or as you know, like gender neutral or women identified, gender neutral or above, um, who who go out and do the same guardian angel act, except uh, except looking for creeps. And it seems to have been, it seems to be very effective. It's certainly a very effective optic. Yeah, it's smart to kind of stay ahead of what the culture cares about. You know, if, uh, if vigilanteism is getting a bad name because of Bernie Getz or somebody else in the headlines, let's pivot to uh, people chaining up their dogs. Yeah, you see a lot less, a lot fewer switchblades and a lot more upskirt camera pics these days. Like, what's the greater. Uh, what's the greater threat to if civil society? If I saw somebody society? open a switchblade, I think I would honestly think like, you know, are you a time traveler? Right. Wouldn't you crowd around and be yeah. like, oh, do it again, do it again, show me that. <laughs> I used to have a, I have, my friend had a butterfly knife and then his mom found out. Now, uh, is, uh, and let me ask you this, is I, I feel like a reason for all the media coverage is that it kind of, at the time at least, is that it flattered middle America's idea of, of uh, New York as a lawless wasteland, right? Like they even need... These, I mean, even though these guys seem ridiculous, this is what it takes. This is how bad New York is. Well, again, we're watching a we're watching vigilantism on the rise in the United States right now. You just said vigilante once, but you didn't stick with it. I want you to stick with vigilante. Uh, vigilanteism. You said it once. Okay, let's do vigilante. <laughs> it, it rhymes with full Monty now. Uh, um, we're seeing a rise in vigilanteism, and it is. Uh, it really f- depends where you fall, and, and we're living in a, an incredibly divided society now. And things are changing very fast, so who knows what this is going to sound like in one year, much less a thousand. That's right, and we've got we've got effectively uh, like opposing bands that, in any other time, would be considered gangs. Uh, who are fighting for control of America's cities in a weird way? I you mean, don't consider the Boogaloo guys and the and the Black Bloc to be gangs? Uh, I don't think I don't think of them in those terms, but I, I don't see it. I mean, there's no reason not to. Uh, we're we're watching public opinion in the United States, t- you know, deciding which lawless gang or which like. Um, which which gotta gang, have a good guy. Which gang working on the fringe of the law is going to be the one that uh, whose aims you ultimately support? I think that. Well, who else are you going to root for? The sports ball. Sports is you know sports is having troubles. The, I mean, the police are doing no favors for themselves and winning fans. You know, I still root for for the State Department and the Foreign Service, but I'm really alone in that. I only root for the Parks Department and Public Radio. National Park <laughs> System and, and Public Radio. That's that's it. Well, speaking of radio, uh, Sliwa translated, or he pivoted in the uh, during this period. He pivoted into broadcasting. Yes, Curtis. Uh, get that paper. He got on. He got a radio show. Um, he got a radio show on uh, on WABC in New York. 
And maybe not surprisingly, uh, and this is what made it sort of culturally complicated, was that the guardian angels were almost entirely uh, kids of color protecting people of color in their own neighborhoods, in their own neighborhoods. But Curtis has a very sort of law and order mentality, um, a law and order mentality that when it translates to talk radio is sort of, you know, very quickly verged over into being just regular old law and order talk. Well, especially if that's where the money is, if, you know, if, if the talk radio shows that are successful, they're ones where people say outrageous opinions to stoke conservative rage. I mean, that's what you're going to tend to, even if that's not how you came up. And Sliwoff, by all accounts, um, is sort of an old school reactionary conservative. Uh, it, it gradually became more conservative, but but um, he remains on the radio to this day. Oh, like people in New York might you might see his picture on a bus. You do, and in uh, like when Giuliani became the mayor, he kind of tried to co-opt some of. Sliwa's law and order vibe because the because the guardian angels had become a kind of they'd they'd been accepted by New yeah, York it's a friendly face on this issue yeah and so Giuliani was like oh well maybe you know we can we can work together uh, to make New York you know a safer place and Sliwa um, Sliwa became a charismatic figure. And there is, I think, in every community, a, 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 a sense that restoring law and order is, um, is colorblind. You know, that there, there are conser- what we would think of as conservative pro-police attitudes in any community you go to. And, and a lot of it has to do with, have you, have you recently been the victim of violent crime? Even in communities where they very much distrust the police, you know, you interview these, you interview the residents of those neighborhoods, and absolutely their number one concern is safety on their streets. Right. You know, and they you, you, they just feel like they don't trust any of the forces that could offer it. And in the eighties, there was a lot of recruitment for, by the NP, NYPD uh, in you know Puerto Rican, Dominican, and Black communities to to diversify the police force. So you know. Uh, as the city became less and less working class, the police remained a kind of working class, um, like opportunity for a lot of communities of color. So the 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 confusion of what you think of as the the um, the classic conflict between the police and communities of color was really scrambled in the in the Guardian Angels, and it's really interesting. Sliwa. Um, who always positioned himself as somebody that thought Donald Trump was a crank because they're New York uh, personality figureheads at, during the whole same period. It's Queens versus versus Bronx and Brooklyn. Yeah, and Sliwa had you know just thought Trump was a was a screwball. Um, there's actually some stuff on the web suggesting that Donald Trump considered appointing Curtis as the secretary of defense, <laughs> although I have not been able, there's like three or four references to it, but they all kind of reference back to one another. It's a kind of little bit of a circle, uh, circle jerk. It, I, I, I never found like a reputable source for this. Well, he still got time. That's right. Well, 
so so Sliwa, um not only is uh is still a media personality but but over time has become more and more of a uh like a conservative talking head he's never been a he's never been a trump supporter but he he's had um syndicated shows uh where you know, it's morning radio i mean drive time conservative morning talk radio he's got a following and um and now he has announced that he's running for mayor of new york city in 2021 on a like on a platform that bill de blasio has abandoned the city that what we need to do is restore uh that kind of old school New York faith in the cops and um and cleaning up the streets. There's a video of Curtis walking down the street being followed by um dozens and dozens of pigeons and he's still very fit. He's in his uh he's in his mid 60s. He looks quite he looks younger than his age in all these pictures. He's gr- you know, he's 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 handsome. He's maybe handsomer now than he was uh, when he was younger, you have a type. He's uh, he's still wearing that satin jacket and that red beret everywhere he goes, uh, and I think he's pretty celebrated when he walks around the city. Yeah, he's got know? kind of a grizzled Ernest Borgnine uh, yeah. uh, ex special forces thing going on now. But he's 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 got all kinds of YouTube uh, videos of himself kind of out in in New York, like stirring up trouble, giving stump speeches. But my favorite is this video where he's walking down the street and he's like, everywhere I go, these pigeons follow me. And it's, he's, it's true. He's walking down the sidewalk and every pigeon in the, in the area is just like landing on the ground and kind of walking along behind him in a, uh, like, like the rats in Ireland. They don't vote Curtis. Is he, um, so we could be speaking to a future where Curtis Sliwa is, uh, you know, we're talking about him as kind of a, a funny eighties relic, but in fact, maybe, uh, the future knows of him as the, uh, the first mayor of the New York megalopolis or something in the 21st century. Yeah, he is. He's running as a Republican. He's not an independent. He's running f- for the Republican primary uh, nomination. Republicans occasionally win that race too. So it's, you know, it's, that's not something that always gets figured out in the primary. But in, well, the, in, in the, in the weirdest sense, like the guardian angels did not franchise globally as a, as like a, like a universally accepted and understood uh like fifth column of police or or a, you know of sh- a guardianship of our communities but neither did they uh neither did they disappear in disgrace um even more confusingly Curtis actually was kidnapped in the 90s after the fake one after the fake Oh, but now he's the boy who cried wolf. He was kidnapped and shot multiple times. Because of his uh, crime-fighting activities? So the story was he, he hailed a cab, got in the cab, and there was a guy in the front seat that popped up from the footwell and just started shooting at it. Jeez. And That's worse than the cash cab. <laughs> super confusingly, he re- reached for the door and realized that the handles had been taken out. It's like a movie. And so he, this is the part of the story I don't understand. He got out one of the front windows of the cab, but you've got a driver 
and a guy with a gun shooting at you. And somehow you get out the front window. I wonder which know, window he would have chosen. Covered in blood. But it turned out that um that it was John Gotti Jr. What? Who furious that Curtis had badmouthed his father on his conservative talk radio show. <laughs> another like New York clown uh classic like, New York clown mistake. Clark. Never make fun of John Gotti on your morning radio show. John Gotti Jr. had had this hit put out on him. And um they tried John Gotti Jr. several times for the crime uh and never were able to convict him. But yeah, his second kidnapping by the mob that's gonna um, really. That's gonna win him some votes, I think. It's a very confusing story, uh, but but somehow the guardian angels both feel like an '80s relic. Also, are still active. I saw I saw a group of them in New York the last time I was there, and like in a way, maybe feel even pregnant with possibility now. Like that's the way forward. I, it's hard to. I mean, it's kind of community policing. Sadly, when Curtis has these these. Uh, press conferences for his mayoral campaign, he has guardian angels standing behind him. And I think that's a terrible advertisement for the guardian angels as a neutral sort of community-based policing organization. You don't want them to be a tool of the state. Yeah. Your paramilitary bodyguards. Um, but in a world where you've got boogaloos on one side with AR 15s and you've got uh black, black block, uh, uh, guys with the with the who, who knows f- like fake Molotov cocktails, uh, and then in the middle you've got these. That's not. That's just Smuckers. <laughs> that's not even a Molotov cocktail. You've got these like forty year old uh, like Dominican ladies in red berets who are who are trying to bust peepers. I mean, I'm going to go with the Guardian Angels every time. And that concludes the Guardian Angels. Entry 554.EX2320, certificate number 25639, in the Omnibus. Uh, future links, speaking of relics of the past, I'm not talking about Curtis Lewa. By the way, it's it's weird, by the by the way, that there's one white guy named Curtis still in New York. Yeah, and it's, but, and it's, uh, wait, it's Curtis, it's Curtis with a C. Yes. So it's not, it's not like... Curtis. Curtis. But maybe that gets him in that that gets him in, in certain neighborhoods. Hey Curtis is here. Which hey, Curtis? Yo, Curtis? Which Curtis? Curtis Sliwa? It <laughs> <laughs> gets um, him in in Canarsie. But uh, you know, social media also somehow still persists. And uh, if you're a omnibus listener in your area, you can look to see what John and I were doing in our area at John Roderick, at Ken Jennings on Twitter, and in John's case Instagram. We are jointly at Omnibus Project. So please uh, like, share, and subscribe, as the young people say. Um, look for John's TikTok. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's where it's all happening. Look for my cameo. I'll tell you happy birthday for only twenty thousand dollars. Oh yeah, we were gonna we were gonna start a cameo. We talked about that. What's what are we gonna do? We're gonna leave people's outgoing phone messages. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Everybody has. Uh, an hey, answer everybody! Machine. <laughs> Thanks for calling Cynthia. This is Ken Jennings. Uh, you can. Um, we're not really on Facebook, but the Futurelings are, and mm-hmm. they're a lovely they're a lovely fan group. There are similar uh, communities on uh, Discord and Reddit, who are probably reminiscing about Guardian Angels and or correcting us about our pronunciation right now. Yeah, unless you ha- are one of the very first people to have downloaded this episode and uh, and watched it, 
um, there's very little chance that uh, if you went to Facebook right now, you wouldn't find a, a, an ongoing conversation about it where you're already going to feel behind. The uh, people will be complaining about saying vigilante right Vigilanteism. Uh, you can email us uh, if you prefer to deliver your complaints in person and not just to like-minded fellow complainers. You can email us at uh, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. If you want to send us physical items, I'm opening a box right now and I have no idea what's in it. You can mail it's those. It's a bomb! Ah! A, a guy just jumped out of this box and, <laughs> and says... Uh, Happy birthday! Happy Best regards from John Gotti Jr. Uh, oh, this is nice. Um, Wait Vince, a minute, there's a, there's a like a, a a fully eaten apple core sitting there. Did you bring that, or is that something else that came out of the box? No, I just finished an apple. Oh, I always like to eat a big apple while I'm recording a podcast. I oh, feel yeah. like the listeners. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy. yeah. No, I did it before the show. Um, Vince is uh, ninety days sober. Hey, congratulations, Vince. He th- he th- thanks us for helping. I don't know why. Um, when John mentions he helps people who are struggling, uh, when you talked, when you mentioned that on the George Bush's crack dealer show, he reached out. I don't know if he um, if you spoke to him. Oh yeah. But he sent us. Oh wow, this is very. Hello. He says he can't support the show financially right now, but uh, he kind of is because he sent us these lovely uh, socks with um surfing monkeys on them okay and and some palm trees right and this is very um prescient he sent us a uh a little model of the back to the future car you uh you just let me shoot this over to you you just referenced a delorean on this very episode and well he sent this months before uh anybody heard the the delorean entry that we recorded recently oh this is a cool little dude the doors go up Thank you so much, Vince. Hey, Vince. And congratulations uh, on your um, congratulations on your new sobriety. Yeah, one day at a time, Vince. Uh, there was something else in the mail, but I think it was just another birthday card to you. Oh, it was, yes. Oh. Julie, calling herself Grandma Julie, probably not your grandma. She sent me $5 for my birthday, and she wants you to know that she sent you $6, and she hopes this gives you some ammunition in your... Um, Efforts to take me down a peg or keep me in my place. Have you noticed that there's a growing uh, sense of, oh, this is $6, six real American dollars. <laughs> I like how you were instantly derailed in your sentence by seeing a $5 bill. Well, and I like Julie's handwriting. She has cursive handwriting in the very style that I write cursive handwriting. Like, this could be my uh, my formal handwriting. And, it's, and we, we it, both... It looks like it's it's taking her some effort. It's not the yeah. easiest way she could write, but she's um but she's willing to do that for you, John. Yeah, on this your is that's how I write cursive too, and it, I feel like we learned we must have learned cursive within ten years of one another, because this feels like a style that no longer exists. Uh, but I, but I, what I was saying is, have you noticed that among uh, the futurelings, there's now a kind of um, there's a subset of them that are kind of gleefully pitting us against one another, you and I. Yeah, what are the what's Re- their end game? I don't know. Replying to your emails and saying sorry, nothing for John this time. Not really interested in John's stories. Or here's six dollars, John. I only gave Ken five. I think you've been stoking it actually. No, and you you want these kind of uh, you're, you're trying to build a private fan base. No, and you're going to start putting them in in red berets and members only jackets. No, it, when people are on our website and they're like, list your favorite episodes, 
you see all the time these people that are like, I, they're, here are my top 10 episodes, and they're all your episodes. My brother texted me yesterday to be like, hey, I liked the new omnibus. John's wasn't any good. I was like, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> was, he, was he listening to the Duke d'Anjou? It was a Duke d'Anjou. Because I agree. How did you know? <laughs> I agree. That wasn't any good. <laughs> By far the episode of the Omnibus that I most feel like uh, couldn't quite get my But isn't it on. nice working in a medium where it doesn't matter if the, if the result is any good or not? That, that's something I have to love about podcasting. <laughs> the, the thing about podcasts is they exist, and that's all people want. Hey, is this thing an hour long? Okay, <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> it's you know, it's not even that it's uh, not any good as much as it is that someone out there, I guarantee you, someone out there, the Duc d'Anjou episode of Omnibus is their favorite. That's exactly episode. right. There is no consensus, and I'm like, I as the creator of that episode, let me tell you, it was a bad episode, and they're going to argue with me. No, 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 it was amazing. I learned so much. I loved the sound of your voice. It hit just right. As you struggled to figure out who the seventh cousin of the seventh Duke was. You do not have to send us um, $5 bills to support the show. I I mean, we're not going to send them back, probably. Um, But uh, luckily, for your convenience, we have set up uh, a Patreon for those who uh, feel like their omnibus experience is richer when they can keep the show on the air. If it's in your budget, you can support the show at patreon.com slash omnibusproject and enjoy all the amazing perks of membership that come with that. We really do appreciate it. And rather than send us 5 or $6 in an envelope, you can send us $5 a month and it makes a huge difference. It's 12 times as good yeah. every year, in my opinion. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past back before all law, law enforcement was handled by some offshoot of Curtis Sliwa's uh, paramilitary It's going to be actual groups. raccoons. They won't need oh, to put the raccoon tails on their I hope. hats. It'll Wouldn't be, little, be little washing bears and berets with maybe human, or, uh, human tails coming off their hats. If order in the world were maintained by, by like sentient trash pandas... I would be so thrilled. They'd be un- they'd be uncontroversial because they'd be so cute, and maybe that would lead to abuse. I don't and know. when they go, they're not cute. They're scary. No, they'd rear up on their hind legs, and then the 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 pervs on the train would stop taking their upskirt photos. Well, we have no idea how long it will take for trash pandas to fight the army of pervs, but uh, we hope and f- pray that that end result comes soon. We hope and pray that the catastrophe that we fear may never come but if the worst comes soon this recording like all our recordings may have been our final verge. if providence allows we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus